This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. It's tax time. Most wonderful time of the year, Most right? Most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> For some of us. I tell you, as soon as I read us, this, I don't know. <laughs> as soon as I saw this this morning, going through it, reading through it, etc., before, before the show, I thought, oh, we got to get on that uh-huh. right now. And I think, I, so it's super timely. Oh, yeah. Um, People's T4s are arriving. Exactly. You know, you're starting to wonder, am I going to owe money, getting something back, right? It's it's topical. Yep. So this so this segment's all about the do's and don'ts. Um, so whether you're getting a check from the government because of you're, you're getting a tax refund or you haven't filed for a long time, there's a bunch of things uh, that we can talk about here. First of all, tax time can be really intimidating regardless mm-hmm. of what situation you're in, I think, right? Uh, but especially if you owe money. So I know you've got lots of experience, Blair, in helping people f- getting caught up financially and back up on track. So what are the tips? Uh, let's start, first of all, to share for folks actually preparing a tax return. What, what's, some, what's some good things to, to keep in mind as you start that process? Yeah, so we've got some do's and some don'ts, yeah. right? So we'll focus on those today. So in terms of the first do, so things to be really cognizant of, the first one is to know and to abide by the filing and the payment deadlines and to know these are not the same. So your filing deadline and your payment deadline may be different dates. Okay. So we'll spend a minute about that. Yeah. So for this year, the tax filing deadline for an individual is April 30th of 2020. So you got to get it in by that midnight. Exactly. Right? So unless you're self-employed, uh, you need to have your tax return filed by this date. And that's also the payment due date for taxes owing for 2019. So if you file your return and you know you owe them a couple hundred dollars, well, you should have either a check with the return or direct deposit or whatever, but just make sure that you're sending a payment in with the return. Now, if you're self-employed, the filing deadline is a little bit later. You get a bit of extra time. It's June 15th of 2020. But But this is really important. This is hugely important. But you have to pay the same deadline as of April 30th. And you'd say, well, well, how do I know what I got to pay? I haven't even done my taxes until June 15th. And CRA says, well, you're going to have to make a guess. And if you overpay, yeah, we'll give that back to you. If you underpay, we'll be nice enough. And we'll charge you some interest on the amount exactly. that you underpaid. Immediately. So, yeah. Immediately. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. But as a self-employed person, realize you got some extra time, but you do have to have the payment in by April 30th to avoid uh, the penalties and interests. Yeah. And what you need to be aware on here is interest and penalties charges, they can be significant. Um, They start right away on May 1st on unpaid amounts owing. And CRA charges interest the compounds daily. So similar to some credit card companies now, um, every day, interest upon interest. Um, If you owe for 2019 and you file your return after the filing due date, so if you don't get it in by April 30th, right off the top, there's a 5% penalty of the amount owing plus 1% of your balance owing for each full month that your return is late. 
So that can be significant, right? Yes. And, you know, imagine 5 plus 12, 17% on top of your taxes just for filing late. Yeah. Uh, and if you're habitually late, so, you know, the vast majority of Canadians file their taxes on time every year. But if you're a late filer, Siri is going to charge you a late filing fee, obviously. But they're going to look back and see, hey, did we charge this fee for 16, 17, or 18? And if they did, they're going to say, well, this is not just your first time. Therefore, we're going to double the fine. We're going to charge you 10% late filing penalty and 2% for each full month the return is late, as opposed to 5 and then 1%. So be very aware it's important to get the returns in on time. Uh, even if the payments are late, get the return in to avoid the late filing penalties. Yeah, do not forget to file your tax return. Man, oh man, that's the, the most important thing. And yeah. I get it, right? I mean, P- I mean, I don't get it. I have to be honest. I'm always right on time because yeah. I it just scares the heck out of me not to be on time. Yeah. So, uh, but I know lots of people don't. No, and I understand some people have you know a mental block. They just things to do with the government. They get so intimidated. Um, they get just so worried they're going to do something wrong. So they just end up kind of in a paralysis mode. Um, but if you don't file your taxes or if you file late, you know you can miss out on amounts owing to you from the government. So for example, GST credits, Canada Child Benefits, Old Age Security, um, all of those and others are based on you filing your taxes every year so that the government knows your income. Yeah. Um, and even if you can't pay the balance on time, you at least avoid the late filing penalties just by getting the return in on time. Um, So the do is to know the deadlines and the don't is don't fail to file. Make sure that you get the returns in. Okay. So let's say I've decided I'm going to file. I'm going to try to get it in on time. What should I, let's say, what should I start thinking about in March uh, to do that properly? Yeah. It's all about setting aside enough time so that the taxes isn't this, you know, massive mountain you need to get up and down of in the space of, you know, 24 hours. But the idea is almost every month, especially if you're self-employed, spend, you know, the hour, the half hour or something and just keep yourself organized. So the do here is to set enough time, set aside enough time Um, you know, to figure out the tax slips, the receipts, to know what you're going to need for your tax return before the day you actually start to work on your return. You can avoid the last minute scramble, avoid the stress and still make sure that you meet the filing date. Fair enough. And do people still get drawn in by, I guess, lack of a better word, tax scams? I mean, I don't even know what that is exactly. Well, it's less and less, but there was a recent um, decision, you know, finally, and this has been going on since about 2005, um, there was all these donation tax scams. So I have a number of clients even now where we're still dealing with the aftermath where someone might donate $1,000 and then through all this financial chicanery and wizardry, um, they get a tax receipt for $20,000 or something like that. They'd put the $20,000 on their tax refund, on their tax return, then they'd end up with a big tax refund check and then CRA years later would come back and say, well, that's the fraudulent thing. We want all that back plus penalties and interest. So I haven't seen much of that in the last couple of years, but up as recently as two or three years ago, it was still going on, this donation tax scam. So, you know, the don't here is don't fall for tax scams. Yeah, you know, there's, and- there's really nothing new under the sun. You know, sometimes people think, well, if I had more money, I get a better account and I would save a lot more taxes. For the vast majority of people, there's literally nothing you can do to reduce your tax liability. All you're doing is paying, you know, tax professionals for something that they won't be able to deliver. If you're self-employed, if you have a very sophisticated amount of financial holdings, there's a lot of tax planning you can do. But for the average person, you know, single person or family, one T4 job, a little bit of charitable donations, there's not too much science behind it or not too much art behind it. It's pretty straightforward. Fair enough. So can you share some tips about balances uh, for people who are getting refunds and for people who owe like, so for people who can expect to owe each year, Mm -hmm. are there some tips that 
that they can sort of keep in mind as they start planning? Yeah, so absolutely. So if we start on the refund side first, so that's the happy side, you know, you're getting some money back from the government. So the key thing here is just to make sure you use that money meaningfully. So do something that's going to have a big benefit to yourself. Uh, If you're carrying some debt, throw it right away to pay down the debt. That's usually the best return you're going to get is to eliminate, you know, 19% interest charges against you. If you're not carrying debt, well, what about RRSP contributions? Take Uh your tax refund, contribute to RRSP for next year. You'll get another tax refund the following year. You can just continue to do that. uh, Or even your TFSA as well. I was going to say the TFSA is always... TFSA, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, And don't let the, the, uh, the letters confuse you or stop you from looking into it if you haven't already, because mm-hmm. it is probably one of the best things that the federal government ever did. Oh, exactly. Yeah. It's and there crazy. Needs, and there needs to be more adoption on, on TFSAs. You know, a lot of people have opened an account, put in one deposit, and that's that. But if you know what you're doing with a TFSA and you've got the right investments in there, it can be a great vehicle to save for your retirement. Yeah, really good. Mm-hmm. Now, the last point here is if you are getting a refund and you're going to splurge with it, make sure you just do that once. Um, I've had clients who said, oh, I was getting $2,000 back on my taxes, so I booked this trip to Mexico and I did this for my car and so on and so forth. And it turned out they had spent that refund about three times over. Got so it. be very careful. You don't spend dollars <laughs> that actually aren't coming towards you. Now, if you've got some monies owing to the government, which unfortunately might be more common for uh, folks obviously that walk in the door to see me, there's a couple things that you want to do. And the first one is to understand, well, why? You know, why do I owe the government some money? Mm-hmm. And if it's unexpected, understand, well, what should I be doing differently next year to, to make a change with that? So, you know, the most common reasons people would owe tax uh, is if they're working more than one job. So this is one of those things where you think you're helping yourself, but sometimes you end up with a bit of a financial hangover. If you end up working a second job, you need to make sure that your second employer takes off taxes at a higher rate than they would take off if that was your only source of employment. Because of how tax rates work in Canada, once you get over a certain amount of income, the next dollar is taxed at a higher rate. And if you're not sure, if your new employer doesn't know that you're working other jobs, they might not be taking off enough taxes. Government doesn't really care at the end of the year. They're going to say, well, if we didn't take enough off, then you owe us the balance. So be careful if you're working multiple jobs that your taxes are taken off appropriately. Yeah, because it is, a, from personal experience, it can be an awful, awful surprise. Yeah. Or Bad. if it's unanticipated and then you file your taxes and then, gee, they want you to pay as soon as you file. So. Exactly. Yeah, you're looking at a penalty at that point. Exactly. Uh, for receiving EI benefits, if you're getting EI in the same type of in, in a year when you're also working, oftentimes the withholdings on EI are significantly lower than what they should be to keep you with no tax debt. So be aware you might be need to need to put a little bit of extra money aside if it was a year that you collected EI as well as worked. Uh, and then the last one here is just about self-employment income. Um, so you really need to make sure you're making regular installment payments to CRA along the year. If you're collecting GST, you're paying it, you're remitting it back to CRA. It's when you start to use m- amounts that should have been sent to the government or for, for GST or whatnot in your operations, that's a huge warning sign that you're in for some financial trouble. Okay. So what about the don'ts? What shouldn't we be doing? Well, the last don't here is don't ignore a balance owing. So anyone that's listened to our show for any length of time knows that I talk a lot about what creditors can do if you owe them money and the steps they have to go through and they have to take legal action and all that before they can hurt you. None of that applies to the government. So if you owe CRA money with very little notice to you, they can go and they can seize your wages, usually about 30% of your wages. They can freeze your bank account, take all the money out of there. They can register untitled to your real estate if you're really delinquent with them. Um, they won't do those things if you're typically working with them. They'll work out a payment plan with you. They'll be nice to deal with. But if you go silent and you just ignore the problem, you can expect that CRA is going to take some pretty significant and escalating collection activities against you. Now, if I came to you and said, look, I, I've already 
already talked to somebody at CRA and they're really not interested in helping me. Mm-hmm. Does it make sense to try that again and hope and find in the hopes of finding somebody who might be, or is the rule the rule and they're all following the same rule? Well, it depends. So there's definitely is a set of rules, and there's no agent at CRA that's ever going to be able to reduce the amount that you owe. So you know, if you owe five thousand dollars in back taxes, doesn't matter how nice they want to be and help you out, they can't do anything to reduce that principle. Okay. Now, what they can typically do is they can give you up to about a six-month payment plan. So if you're speaking to a CRA agent and they won't even give you a six-month payment plan in good faith to pay it off in full, then I would say, yeah, you're probably speaking to the wrong person or someone not having a great day or so on and so forth. Nothing to stop you from hanging up and trying to get reassigned to somebody else. Because chances are good you're going to get somebody else. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but if you know six months is so far out of the realm of possibility and you want them to go and you know a two or three-year payment plan and make a deal with you to reduce the debt, you're barking up the wrong tree completely. There's nobody at CRA that can, has the authority to make those types of deals. The only way you could achieve that outcome of getting a reduced amount on your taxes, of paying off what you can afford, of not having your wages taken, is by working with a licensed insolvency trustee. So by filing either a bankruptcy or more preferably a consumer proposal, you could restructure your debts. No matter who tells you differently, mm-hmm. licensed insolvency trustees are the only ones that can do that in this country. That's absolutely right. And super important to remember. Uh, so here's how you do that. Get a hold of uh, your local Sands and Associates office. Super easy to do. Their toll-free number is 1-800-661-3030 or visit the website at sands-trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So managing credit card debt, it's got to be the number one thing that people have and come to you about? Number one thing that drives people through the door, 100% is credit card debt. Because it feels so out of control and that I can't do anything about it. And that's what this segment's all about, is learning strategies that can help you bring your credit card debt either to a zero balance and for things to watch out for along that way. Mm -hmm. Because we know everybody's offering one, whether it be major banks, major retailers, Uh, And it's no surprise that everybody has at least one two, I don't know, maybe three, four, you tell me, you see these folks at your place. Well, the average is between two to three cards for the average Canadian, but I have people coming in, sometimes it's a stack, you know, an inch or two thick of the number of cards. So, you know, I've seen 20 cards, I've seen 30 cards, and obviously these are some very extreme situations, but a lot of the time, you know, it's the two to four cards probably. It's not the number of credit cards that are the issue quite often. Uh, It's just the amount of accumulated debt and the interest rates on those debts. Right. And the other thing is to draw your attention to, if it already hasn't dawned on you, that this is possibly somebody who uh, got into trouble and that that's not not a a prerequisite for getting a new card just Mm -hmm. because you're in a situation that seems you need more credit in order to get out of it, mm-hmm. you're, you're their perfect candidate. Yeah, it, it's surprisingly and you know deceptively easy to get more than enough credit than you would ever need. So, you know, if you've got some good credit history the last couple of years, you haven't been missing payments, anybody who would go out and apply for a number of cards would probably be surprised at the amount of credit that would actually come through. So it's very easy to get into credit card debt. And the thing with credit card debt too is, you know, with a mortgage, you know what you're paying for. You're paying for the house. With the car, it's the car loan. Sometimes with the line of credit, it's a renovation. There's something discreet that you know for sure you got something out of it. Uh, The clients that I see day in and day out when it's credit card debt, 
it's very difficult to point to anything that is lasting that was purchased with the credit cards. So, you know, quite often it was just there was a monthly gap in the budget and the credit card helped to fill that gap. It was used to live, it was used for various things, maybe a vacation, but it's not like there's some asset that people are holding on to saying, no. okay, well, this was worth it at the end of the day. So it's a debt that it's easy to get into. There's often no lasting benefit to it uh, and it can be a real challenge to get out of. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about uh, just how long it takes to pay off credit card debt. Yeah. So working from the worst case uh, to the more reasonable case here, uh, a retail store credit card, and these are typically the worst of the worst. I don't know uh, why folks continue to get these. I know they have some loyalty programs, of course, and all that, but 29.9% interest rate to me just eclipses everything with just a $5,000 debt, which is not too tough to accumulate with a few few bad months or say an income interruption or something. You know, $5,000 debt at that interest rate would take you 50 years and four months to pay off, and you would pay the debt off about five times over in terms of interest charges, almost $24,000 of interest over that period of time. So, you know, if you're carrying anything on a department store credit card at 29.9, five grand is 50 years. So, you know, kind of do your own math there. It's very discouraging. Um, You know, working down to a standard credit card, which is similar to, you know, an 18.9% credit card uh, interest rate, it's a lot more reasonable, you know, less than half of the time at 19 years and nine months, but you're still talking 20 years to pay off about $5,000 and you would pay more than 100% of what you owe um, in interest charges. So again, a little bit better, but still 20 years to pay off 5,000. That's a lot of a person's working life to carry to carry off a $5,000 debt. Um, you know, the last option here is a low rate card just to show the impact of that. So if it was a low rate card at about 11.9% interest rate, which is pretty reasonable expectation, I think, um, you'd be looking at about 14 years and seven months. So still saves you a significant amount of time, nowhere near the 50 years for a department store, less than the 20 years for a standard credit card, um, but you're still paying significant amounts in interest, about $2,400 in interest on your $5,000 balance. So at the end of the day, if you're carrying a balance on a credit card, realize that making the minimum payments is not doing much, if anything, to get you out of debt. Okay, so what's the first thing a person can do? Well, first thing, and a lot of people are amazed that you can actually do this, is try to negotiate your interest rate in your credit card or switch to a lower rate card. So it's really important that you do a bit of research ahead of this. So if you know, if you Google online, you know, Canada best low rate credit cards, uh, you'll find a number of blog posts of websites where they'll do a comparison uh, and go into your bank armed with that information. So, you know, be prepared, understand what's what's offered elsewhere and be straightforward and calm, but firm in your approach. And just say, you know, I've been a customer for a long time. I'd love to continue to be a customer, but I need you to be able to offer something that's as competitive as, you know, Bank B is offering here with a lower rate credit card. Um, most banks that I've dealt with in the past, they don't like to negotiate, but you will have some surprising outcomes. They don't want to lose your business. Uh, you might find access to lower rate card products that you might not even find advertised very easily online. Okay, so let's say you, you're able to get that um, uh, lower card, uh, lower card rate, or let's say you, it can't be lowered and mm-hmm. you, you've, you've got what you've got, yep. what do you do then? Well, then you look at, do you have other cards that have lower interest rates or can you go and apply for another card that has a lower interest rate and try to transfer the balances over? So if the existing card that you've got isn't going to be able to, to do what you need, well, then see, are there other options that are out there, either through another bank or a different card at the same bank to try to transfer a balance? Okay, that's, uh, okay, all right. You, that's, you think that that's the, the best, or not the best, but that's good advice to follow. Well, it's better than keeping with a high interest rate, unfortunately. For sure. Yeah. Okay, fair enough, fair mm-hmm. enough. So I know debt consolidation is a strategy that lots of people uh, consider. Can you sort of run through that for somebody? 
Yeah, and sorry, Lynn, I think we skipped our, our second point here about paying oh. the highest interest card first. Or, okay, oh, or yeah, maybe sorry. I, I misunderstood no, what no, you were, what no, you were no. mentioning Fair there. Fair enough. But yeah. yeah, what I was going to say is if you've got some cards where you have a balance on the high interest card and you can't transfer that balance anywhere else, um, you do need to have an approach to basically paying off that debt first and you want to prioritize your highest interest cost debt. So what you need to do is you need to sit down with your budget and you need to figure out, well, what can I afford to pay on my debts every month? And that can be your first test. If you can't afford to pay anything, well, then you've got a pretty significant problem problem and, you know, trying to rearrange the amounts that aren't enough, you need to go and get some help. But if you're sure you're able to cover all of your minimum payments on your credit cards, you need to figure out what's left in my budget after I paid the minimums and throw all of that extra money at the highest rate card until that one's brought down to zero. Oh, good. I'm glad that we went back to that point because that is really important. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. Very important. So then debt consolidation, I know, is that the thing that most people think about right off the bat? You know, a lot of people jump straight to debt consolidation at first. They say, well, regardless, I mean, negotiating my interest rate or trying to move things around. I just want to consolidate. I want to have one payment. I want to have it at a lower interest rate. I'm going to pay that off each month. Things are going to be way way more simple. See, and that seems very logical to me that uh, a smart person would go, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. what I'm going to do. Yeah, and it definitely makes good financial sense. But two big challenges. Number one, very difficult to qualify. You need to have a bunch of assets or really high income to be able to consolidate your debts because the bank at that point is taking a risk. They're paying off all the other credit cards and expecting that you're going to pay them back and they're only going to do that if they've got some good coverage. They know they could take an asset or your wages are so high, they know they'd be able to get paid back. So it can be difficult to qualify for. The second thing is after you've consolidated, it's so critical that you take the old credit cards, you know, either chop them up, put them in ice, do whatever, but stop using them. Because so often I've had people in my office where I can see the consolidation loan they've done three years ago. And I say, well, what was that to consolidate? Oh, it's to consolidate these other cards, which they now have balances again because they were at zero and then they got used again. Got it. So you got to make sure you deal with the underlying budgetary issue um, to make sure the consolidation would be a success. So let's finish this segment up with if the consolidation loan doesn't work to take on the credit card debt, what's the next step? The next step is to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee and figure out, well, what are your options to actually restructure this debt once and for all legally? Um, And two main ones, you know, one being your first option would be to consider a consumer proposal. So for anyone out here that's sitting with a bunch of credit card debt and is not sure what they can do, a consumer proposal reduces all credit card debt interest and all other debt interest down to zero. So literally zero extra interest charged. And it's a question of what can you afford to repay on the full amount. For some people, it's the full debt, but for the vast majority of people, it's about 25 to 50%, maybe 30%, 30 cents in the dollar, something like that. So a proposal consolidates all the debt, eliminates all the future interest charges, and gives you up to five years to pay off that reduced balance without having to file for bankruptcy. And again, you know, the best place to start is to go to Sands & Associates, talk to Blair or any of the staff that they've got, the licensed insolvency trust and they can walk you through this. It's so easy to get super discouraged when you've got all of this debt. Uh, Just a couple of things. Remember, you're not alone. And if you're feeling overwhelmed by it, give these guys a call. Sands and Associates, you can get a hold of them by calling their toll-free number 1-800-661-3030 or visit their website, sands-trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, we always do this uh, every month. We do a bit of a, a, a roundup, uh, and we're going to start off, first of all, Blair, some things or trends that you're seeing 
right now mm -hmm. that you haven't necessarily seen before. Yeah, so one definite one that, that's just happened in this last, last month is anybody that owes Golden Ears Bridge tolls, um, you're about to get a bit of a surprise. Um, so what happened is with our new NDP government, as we're all aware, tolls have been stopped on, you know, the Portman and Golden Ears for quite some time. Um, but there has been, you know, an office and infrastructure where they've been trying to collect on the debts and so on and so forth. Uh, what's happened is just last week I was speaking to these folks in their last couple of days of work there. Um, it's now just a collection agency. So if you owe the government money for Golden Ears tolls, um, don't expect to call the province of BC anymore. Expect that you will be dealing with a collection agency. Um, and I would expect that your discussions are probably going to be a lot less friendly than somebody who you clearly pay their salary with the government. A collection agent um, is going to have a little bit of a different objective, that of getting as much money back as possible, as quick as possible. Wow. Okay. So when you're saying golden ears, mm -hmm. so I mean, I think one uh, one trip across was what three dollars, three something. I think yeah. So, but this, I mean, would they be going after somebody like me who doesn't use the bridge very often uh, to the person who uses it two or three or four times a day? Like, or, or is or is it is everybody fair game on this? You know, I think there'll be some, you know, materiality threshold. If you owe them six bucks, I don't think you're going to hear too much. Um, but I would think, you know, anything that's above, you know, call it a hundred bucks or something like that, I would expect you'd at least get a letter. Um, but definitely, if you've got something where you were driving the bridge and for whatever reason you were commuting, you just never paid and you owe thousands of dollars. Um, if things have been quiet for a period of time, they might have been these last, you know, few months or a year, um, I would expect them to heat up again quickly. So if you're in a situation with a lot of golden nearest bridge tolls, you start to get collector calls. Not the end of the world. It just means the debt's basically been given off to a collector, but it is something that you're going to want to deal with. So obviously give us a call at Sands or reach out to another trustee um, and definitely a trustee can help you move forward on that. Excellent. Okay. What's these, what's the second trend? It says vehicle financing. How's that a trend? Haven't we always had vehicle financing? Well, we definitely have, but if you remember, or at least definitely I remember when I was getting my license, you know, it was three-year payments. Typically, you're going to finance a car, you know, three years, four years, maybe five years, something like that. Um, so... Um, so, you know, definitely what we've seen is that the term of financing has extended in such a big way. Um, so I'm going to talk about an example in a, in a little bit here of the client that I was helping out. But I'm regularly seeing advertising of seven-year financing terms, 84 months, um, you know, even as much as eight years or 96 months. Uh, it just seems insane to me that, you know, an asset, especially a car, depreciates so rapidly, you're still going to be making payments seven or eight years after you've purchased it. You know, hopefully you've still got a good vehicle at that point, but, you know, maybe not. Um, so it just seems, you know, we're really chasing a low monthly payment. And, you know, even now I've seen dealerships are quoting, you know, a biweekly payment or a weekly payment, even almost a daily payment, you know, just to really make it seem like the number is small, but they're obscuring the whole longer term, which means that, you know, vehicles are more expensive than ever and you're going to be paying a lot over the term. Okay. So pay attention to the length of the term that they're suggesting or wanting or demanding that you sign up for. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's see an example. Yeah, so definitely one example I wanted to, to talk about for this month, uh, and it's when it's right on point with vehicle financing. Uh, this was an example where I was actually called um, by an individual and his mom, um, which you know some, sometimes happens because he was a relatively young guy. So um, he was age 20, and he was driving a 95 Toyota Corolla, which was clearly you know giving up the ghost. It wasn't doing what he needed anymore. Um, he went in on his own to a car dealership and by his own admission, he says, you know, they saw me coming. Um, you know, they definitely thought, okay, this is someone that, you know, perhaps they can put into, you know, a really nice truck, a nice, nice vehicle. Um, and he, by his own admission, you know, just didn't say no enough. 
So what happened is he walked out of the dealership with a deal for a 2017 full-size pickup for total loan payments of, get this, $77,332 divided over the next eight years. That's Well, first of all, and it's, uh, it's an age-related thing for me, mm-hmm. I can't imagine paying over $77,000 for a vehicle. Right. To me, that's just crazy. Right. But monthly payments of over uh, of around eight hundred and five dollars, yeah, and then you've got here plus insurance costs. Yeah, you've still got to insure this vehicle. You got to put gas in it, maintain it, and insure it. So and we, the gas alone, oh man, that's yeah, crazy amount a of money. Size pickup, and you know, and if you can afford all this, it makes sense. But sure. the challenge is, uh, the individual that came to see me, unfortunately, he couldn't afford it. Um, so you know, his monthly income was just about two twenty two hundred dollars per month. Uh, he was living on his own, and his rent was about half of that. It was about a thousand dollars, which is pretty. pretty Pretty good rent rate if well, you can get it. Yeah, and it's scary to say that a thousand dollars a month is good rent these days. Right, but, but unfortunately, in, that is the case. Yeah. But in the Lower Mainland, yeah. holy moly! So a couple days after he had signed the vehicle, you know, he wasn't sure is there some cooling off period or things like that. So he went back to the dealership and just said, you know what, guys, I clearly I got caught up in the emotion. I made a mistake. You know, can we unwind this deal or figure out getting me into some vehicle I can afford? Um, they basically, it was night and day, you know, there was his best friend when he's buying the vehicle, but they wanted nothing to do with him. They wouldn't help him at all. They basically said, you know, you've got to fi- find out a way to pay this loan, um, or you can just, you know, sell the vehicle, pay a bunch down and, you know, pay it off over time. But either way, we're getting our money, we being the car dealership. Now, one side of me says I have a little, uh, little, uh, being on my shoulder. Well, let's say, l- let's say out loud who this dealership is, mm-hmm. but... My bet is that they all operate this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not unusual to do it this way. Yeah, this was definitely the, the most egregious example I've seen of somebody getting into a vehicle that they just should not have gotten approved for. But, you know, definitely there are other examples, other dealerships where I'm sure sometimes maybe pushing towards month end, you know, you push through a deal that maybe it's, it's on the bubble and maybe shouldn't get approved, but, you know, you get it through there. Right. But, you know, for the client that got that deal, especially in this case, you know, it wasn't a positive thing. Um, so he came in to see me just incredibly distraught. You know, he's age 20 years old. He thought he had made a lifelong mistake or at least the next, you know, eight, 10 years was going to have, you know, no financial flexibility whatsoever. Um, and we actually looked at, well, what would happen if you were to sell the truck? And I remember this moment um, because I pulled up a black book value and yes. we knew he was going to say, you know, he's going to have to pay $77,000 over eight years. So I said, you know, if I were to seize this truck and put it to auction, what's the black book tell me? Right. $31,600. Which is less than half. Less than half. So of what we, it costs. So we know things depreciate when you drive them off the lot, but that was massive. Yeah. And again, this is auction, you know, maybe retail might be about 10 higher, so we're still low 40s, but right. nowhere near the amount of payments he would be making over the next seven or eight years. Or if you sell it privately, I know you can often do better than, than buy back from a dealership or certainly than auction value, but still, uh, you're not ever going to get that money back. That's 77000 Yeah. So things looked pretty bleak for him. And then also in the meeting, we uncovered, you know, he had been overspending a bit. He owed about $11,600 to, you know, to another bank on a credit card. You know, again, just some mismanagement overspending early in his career. Typical stuff. So what did we do? Yeah, what did you do? The first thing is I gave him the power of information, Elaine. I said, (laughs) the dealership is never going to tell you this, but there's a provision of the law in BC that says if you are financing a consumer good like a truck, or a car or anything like that, and you haven't used it for business, if you're not able to pay the loan, if you stop paying, generally the dealership is going to have to take the vehicle back. And as much as they might yell and scream that you're going to be held accountable for the shortfall on the loan, in the province of BC, they can't do that. 
So very, very clearly, if they seize a vehicle for you because you haven't been paying on it, that's the end of the story. They cannot recover the difference from you. So does that impact my other the my other par- the other parts of my credit though it does it's not okay. a good thing because it's a okay. repossession right so All obviously right. Uh, and nobody's saying you know that there was you know dishonesty here you know maybe the dealership could have done a better job of explaining sure. things but at the end of the day the client signed on to an agreement and if you don't if you're not able to honor that agreement it does take a hit on your credit but what we also did is we figured out let's solve the whole problem here. There's about eleven or twelve thousand dollars of consumer debt. There's a seventy-seven thousand dollar truck. Uh, what we worked with the client to do was a consumer proposal. Okay. So as part of the consumer proposal, we let the dealership know that they're not going to get any more payments on this truck, and they should come and seize it whenever they want. Um, but we also were able to reduce his other debt, the eleven thousand six hundred that he was just you know treading water on, making minimum payments sometimes, sometimes not. Uh, we actually did a consumer proposal for him to repay less than half of that. And that was just of the other debt that he had. It was it didn't include the truck at all. Did I get that right? That's right, because he didn't even need to do a proposal for the truck. Got all it. we had to do was explain to him that if you stop paying on this truck, the provisions of the law, it's called seize or sue. And anybody listening out there that wants to do some Google research, just type in seize or sue in the province of B.C., And you'll see that the law says um, that basically if you stop paying, they have to seize the vehicle from you and they cannot sue you for the shortfall. And that's different than almost every other province. I'm originally from Ontario. And if this example was happening in Ontario, I'd be saying if you stop making the payments, they're going to seize this truck. They're going to sell it, you know, for between 30 and 40,000. And you're going to be on the hook for whatever is owed on that loan. It's a very bad situation. Right. Province of BC does not operate like that. Doesn't operate like that. So I bet that dealership after, and here's, okay, there's two points I want to make. First of all, because you are a licensed insolvency trustee, that's what Sands and Associates does. They're made up of a, a group of people who do this work every day for folks. Because you're federally regulated, you're the only ones that would have the ability or power to go to the dealership and say, this is the situation. You probably should just come and take your truck. Well, yes, yes and no. So we're the only people that can help with the other debts. So we're the only people that can do the consumer proposal um, to help the individual reduce the credit card debt that had built up. And we're often the only people that give people the information about seize or sue because really who's making money in the situation here? Um, you know, I don't charge any money to give some free advice here and the dealership is losing money by taking the, the, the truck back. So if someone was working with a lawyer, they might get that advice, but they might pay for it. But, you know, essentially anybody could return their vehicle under the provisions of BCCs or sue. You don't have to necessarily work through a licensed insolvency trustee, but often a trustee is the person that actually makes you aware that you have these rights um, because there's really no other professional in the financial system that's unbiased, independent, and is responsible for giving you full information to help you make your decisions. And if I was that dealership, I'd be going, darn we just should have taken the truck back when the poor guy came in and said, look, I can't afford this thing because the result was the same for them. Oh, yeah. When I think about, you know, who really lost in, in the situation. So, you know, yeah, the individual, um, his credit rating took a hit. He definitely learned a hard lesson and happier. He learned it at 20 rather than 30 or 40 because there's a lot more time to recover here. But definitely from the dealership point of view, they could have had the vehicle back, you know, brand new condition two days in. They ended up getting it back because they waited for three months of missed payments. They ended up getting it back, you know, three or four months in. And, you know, I know it wasn't trashed by any means, but there is wear and tear after a vehicle of a few months. So the dealership, you know, probably lost, you know, $10,000 or more out of this whole example. And hopefully it speaks to, you know, 
dealerships and individuals should realize there's a shared responsibility when they're issuing financing. And as much as the dealership wants to get paid, individuals do have the ability to stop paying and that would force the hand to either seize or sue. If any of this resonates with you and you're thinking, man, I didn't know that, go see Sands & Associates. Check out their website, sands-trustee.com. It's 1-800-661-3030 for that first free consultation or just to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So, all about interest. And I think this is an important piece for people to think about. I know it was for me. It was a big revelation when I realized, oh, man, that interest is high or that interest is really low. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talk about, or financial people talk about interest all the time. Uh, big banks talk about it. Uh, of course, one in particular just announced that they're going to begin charging compounded interest on its personal credit card products. Mm-hmm. Holy Toledo. That was interesting, yeah. Man, compound yeah. interest. If you thought interest was confusing or um, sort of baffling sometimes, at least I always did, wait till we get into compound interest. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Anyways, it's all back in the new, in the headlines again about compound interest. And, and Blair is great. We're going to talk about what you need to know about interest rates and debts, including how and when their changes can impact you, the average person. So to start this thing off, this segment off, can you talk a little bit about the, the credit card interest change that uh, a big bank recently uh, announced and can you talk about which big bank that is? Yeah, well, it was TD, so okay. we don't need. They were very public about it, and uh, you know, other banks may cover, may follow suit or not. Right. Um, but this fell into the the realm of my God, really? <laughs> I was <laughs> I was just quite surprised. Okay, you know, nineteen to twenty nine percent interest rate isn't enough. You want to change how the math actually works? Well, on that's that? the thing. Our yeah. Canadian banks do really well, and that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why they do really well. Oh yeah, their credit card portfolios they c- contribute a disproportionate amount of profits to the banks. That's for sure. Yeah. So the difference is that, you know, with a lot of credit cards and TD before this change, um, your interest was calculated once a month on your average daily balance, okay? Now, what TD has done is they've said, we're not going to look at your average daily balance. Literally, every day there's a balance on that card, we're going to charge you interest. And once we charge interest on one day, the next following day when we charge interest on that amount, we're going to charge interest on the interest we just charged you the day before. Right, so So the interest plus the total. Interest on interest. Right. Where normally once a month they'd add it on. No, it's every single day. It's compounded daily interest. Now, for the average person, it's not a night and day difference. It's not going to make your card, you know, two or three times more expensive, but it is going to make the bank a little bit more money on those folks that do carry a balance, which most people don't. But for those that do, um, you would expect your interest charges to go up marginally um, because of this change by TD. And we'll again see if other banks, um, you know, work that way as well. I think they were hoping that this is just going to go and people aren't going to look closely at how it's calculated and, you know, it's going to come and go and it's going to be a little bit more to pad the bank's bottom line. Right. So what's the what's the most common type of debt that somebody should consider when it comes to interest rates? Well, quite often the most common type of debt that we see, and this is all of our studies bear this out, is credit card debt. Um, and the thing with credit card debt is, you know, you hear about the bank's prime rate and things like that. And, you know, a mortgage might be a couple points above prime and it tends to float and things like that. Uh, with credit card debt, it's so far divorced from the prime rate of interest in this country it is. Um, that, you know, you're looking at typically, um, you know, 19, as I said, 19 to 29% interest rates. And you need to be aware of how significantly those 
those interest rates can work against you um, depending on the type of card that you have. So a couple examples for today's segment, Elaine, I just wanted to talk about if you had a $5,000 debt and how differently that's going to to react depending on the interest rate of the type of card that you have it on. So if you had a $5,000 debt and you had a low rate credit card, so you did the right thing, you went to your bank, you had a good credit history, you said, you know what, I need all the bells and whistles, I want the card with the lowest interest rate possible, and you got a card for 11.9 interest rate, which is pretty reasonable. And is that the lowest one that's out there for the regular Joe? Uh, That's pretty competitive. I've seen sometimes high single digits, but that can come and go. So typically, you know, in the low um, double digits is pretty reasonable. Okay, so, and I just want to add this, more of a personal question. So what do you have to do to get that low interest rate credit card? You phone them up. And just ask. Yeah, typically this isn't going to be the card that they advertise. They're not going to phone you up and say, hey, we can reduce your interest charges typically. But if you call them and say, hey, I'm looking at low rate credit card offers and do your homework first, you know, look online. There's a bunch of competitive sites that are out there um, and just see what are the low rate offers. And if your bank doesn't have one, say, well, you know, I'm looking at the bank X next door and they've got a great offer. You guys must be able to do something to compete with that. And without a lot of uh, bells and whistles, it's probably not going to uh, going to uh, you're not going to be able to collect points That's the big thing, all the that points. kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and the points, that's a whole other segment because if we were to figure sure. out, you know, the actual value of those points, you know, usually it's about 1% of your spend. Uh, if you carry a balance even for just one month, you've usually eclipsed all the value of the points plus more. I was so, going to say you were going to crush my dreams oh. at this point. Yeah. <laughs> no, if you pay it off every month, points can be great. Um, okay. you know, I've collected aeroplan miles for years, um, but you got to pay the card off every month and avoid the interest charges. Okay. So that $5,000, we were saying if you got 11.9% interest rate, it is going to take you just under 15 years. So 14 years and seven months to become debt-free uh, based on a $5,000 debt, making just the minimum payments. And you pay about $2,400 of interest. Wow. Okay? And that's your best case scenario. So, yeah, that's so a lot. Let's give a more common scenario. This one's at 18.9% um, interest. So the same 5,000 uh, from 14 years, it went to just under 20 years. So 19 years and nine months to become debt-free. And now you've paid $5,300 in interest more than you originally owed. Okay, Okay. but it gets even worse if you've got a store credit card. So any of the big retailers, they've got their own credit cards. They're typically 29.9 interest rates. That $5,000 debt, Elaine, I almost couldn't believe it when we calculated this, 50 years and four months to become debt-free. And you would have paid an interest, not the 5000 that you borrowed, not even two times that. You'd pay almost five times the amount that you borrowed in interest. You'd pay $23,262 in interest. So be aware the interest rate on your credit card can significantly change the amount of time you're going to be in debt, the amount that you have to pay, even just your hopes of ever getting out of debt. And where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And where it's that where who your credit card is with? Yeah. What's another kind of uh, debt type that might not be directly impacted by an interest rate increase? Yeah, vehicle loans are the other big ones. So they're set. Yeah, they're typically fixed a fixed rate um, over the period of time that you're financing the car. It doesn't change if the interest rates go up or down. Um, sometimes there can be a variable component where they'll you know add a couple payments to the end if interest rates change, but that's very rare. So for the most part, okay. it's a fixed type of a, of a contract. Now, the, the warning signs that I see with vehicle financing um, is, you know, first off, it's an emotional purchase, and sometimes people get really wrapped up at the dealership. They end up buying way more car or truck than they ever needed, yes. and they're stuck with a payment that can be difficult to afford. So, obviously, be very careful with that. Um, but the other thing is to be very careful about negative equity. So, this means if you're trading in your car before it's paid off, you owe more than what your car is worth, and you just say, you know, we'll add that to my new financing. 
okay? And then you do that another time and so on and so forth. I've had people come to me owing literally sixty to $80,000 on $20,000 vehicles because they just continually didn't want to keep the car for the full term. They owed a bunch of money on it and they said, well, just add that to the new financing on the car. So be very careful about rolling in negative equity. If you've got a car that you don't want to continue to make the payments on, we've talked about that in past um, segments about you know your options there. If you stop making the payments, typically the car will get seized and that will extinguish the debt. So be aware of all of your options before you consolidate some negative equity when you're financing a vehicle. Okay. So, and this, this may be the last thing that we talk about in this segment. What are the types of debts uh, where you will be impacted by an interest rate change? Mm-hmm. Even though you don't start with that, but you end up with a different tra- uh, different rate. Yeah, the biggest ones are lines of credit and mortgages. Um, and obviously, mortgage is very near and dear to us in the Lower Mainland because every every situation or conversation often comes back to housing here. Um, on a variable rate mortgage, if interest rates go up, your payments will go up. So you'll see an impact often by even the next month. Um, and rates have been so low for so long; they're still relatively low. But you got to realize a two percent mortgage. If rates go up by one percent, well, then you've just increased your interest cost by 50% because you're now paying 3% instead of 2 So be aware that even a small change in interest rates and a variable rate mortgage can have a significant impact. What about a fixed rate mortgage? How do you come out with that? Well, fixed rate is typically you've got some certainty that it's not going to change based on the, the rates going up or down, but at renewal time, that's when you might have that's a situation where it. it's going to be a lot more expensive. So, you know, obviously if you're in the year prior to your renewal, you might be looking at, well, do I break earlier now and, and try to lock in if you think rates are going to go up or down? There's a bunch of spec you can do. Uh, but for the most part, uh, if you've stayed variable in the past, it has borne out that that's been the right decision. But you know, who knows in the future how things would go. Okay, so can we skip to the, um, the questions? So what can you do to counteract the costs of an interest rate increase? Because that yeah. seems like the most timely thing to do. Yeah, well, you can't do anything to control interest rates. You know, those decisions are made far above your or my pay grade here. So there's nothing right. we can do to impact the interest rates. But what we can do is not panic. So we know interest rates, they rise and fall with the business cycle. Uh, We know if rates go up, they're not going to be high forever. And if they're low, they're not going to be low forever. Um, The people who are most at risk if interest rates go up are those that are overextended on their debts. So those that, you know, borrow too much, haven't been able to pay it down. So the key thing to do is just to focus on paying as much of your debt down as possible while rates are still low and try to insulate yourself that if rates go up, um, you'll still be able to make payments. Mm -hmm. Uh, Book that free, that confidential free consultation. Uh, It's nice and easy to do. 1-800-661-3030 or visit their website at sands-trustee.com. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.